When I was little, I would ask my mother for a cup of water, and she would oblige and go to the cupboard, get a cup, and go to the faucet where she would turn on the tap and fill that cup with tap water and would give it to me and say, drink up, son. Life was simpler back then. When you asked for a glass of water, you got a glass of water. But now when you ask for a glass of water, there's just simply a plethora of options. They will ask you, do you want mineral water, purified water, sparkling water, spring water, flavored water, carbonated water, vitamin-enhanced water, tonic water, alkaline water, coconut water, fluoridated water, artesian water, and the list goes on. And you want to scream out, all I'm asking is for some water. If there are these many choices when it comes to water, think about the choices you have today in the 21st century in which we live. All the fruits that we can have, even fruits that are not indigenous to our country. Spices that generations ago they had to sail the ocean blue just to get. Chips, nuts, even activities we have for our children. Back in the days, the activity of a child was simply to go out and play. But now you've got them signed up for this craft and that music program. Even the choices of schools are so many. Even the way they teach math. When I grew up, there was only one way to calculate 2 plus 2 equals 4. Nowadays, they teach that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and you can be taught in 10 different ways. The overabundance of options and choices has infused into our culture what we would call a consumer mentality. And while in some cases this is a good thing, because it improves the product with increased competition, consumerism has worked its way, unfortunately, to the detriment of our faith into our Christian walk and into the community we call the church. How do we engage a consumer culture in our 21st century? That's what we want to take a look at this morning as we continue our series entitled Culture Wars. We've been looking at cultural practices and beliefs that are a part of our environment that we don't actively think about. And therefore, it has been ingrained as a part of how we believe life should be lived. And yet, with everything, we must filter it through a biblical grid to see if it is something that we accept or transform. And so this morning, as we talk about the consumer culture, we want to see if it is something that the Scriptures advocate. Because it is our responsibility to engage the culture in order to transform it for Jesus Christ. How do we engage a consumer culture that has transformed us into picking and choosing what we want in terms of our spiritual walk and discipline and discipleship and what we want into a church? And so we go forth to the Scriptures. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Revelation. The book of the Revelation, chapter 3, as we take a look at verses 7 to 8. Revelation, chapter 3, verse 7 to 8. If you're new to the Bible, the book of the Revelation is the last book in the Bible. Chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. As we turn to this passage, I want to begin by defining... The consumer culture. What is consumerism? 
The consumer culture or consumerism is simply a desire to have the widest selection of the best brands at the best price. Simply put, consumerism is the desire to have the widest selections of the best brands at the best price. Three components to the consumer mentality. And so let's study these in detail. It's like a marketing class. First, we have the best selection. It's talking about a desire for accessibility. Everyone wants the widest selection, have everything available, easy to get, convenient for them, accessible. That's why in our current day and age, we have the advent of the super malls, the large grocery stores, places that are, not, that are a one-stop shop where we get to do everything. And so we have begun what we call the mall culture of the Philippines, where at the mall, you can have your car cleaned. And while your car is being cleaned, you can get a foot spa right after you visited your medical doctor. And while you're visiting your doctor, your children are entertained with everything from gaming to watching a movie. While your wife is shopping, and not only can she shop for clothes, she can shop for condos. And then you come together to eat at a wide variety of restaurants, from a five-star restaurant to street foods that are in the stalls. Only in the Philippines do you go to the mall and get everything done. Why is there a need to go anywhere else? And guess what? Some malls even have churches there. So if you have time from your busy shopping schedule, you can go to church and go right back out and shop. This culture of desiring the best selection, the most available things, a convenience, is the cultural aspect that has worked its way into our culture and unfortunately into our spiritual life and into the community we call the church. The church is now to be the one-stop shop. It has to have everything, or else it is not worthy to be a church that I go to. It must be a church that excels in all aspects of ministry and has ministry for everyone. And so we put on the church a very high expectation as consumers. I like what Pastor Edward Skidmore of Castle Hill Christian Church writes when he talks about this phenomena. He says this, A lot of people take that same mentality with them, consumerism, when it comes to choosing a church. In fact, we call it church shopping. If we have little kids, we look for a church with a great kids program. If we don't have kids, we find a church that doesn't have a bunch of noisy children disturbing us. We look for a building that is simple but not shabby, comfortable but not ostentatious, colorful but subdued, cool in the summer and warm in the winter, and most of all, already paid for so we don't have to give to the building fund. We want the music enthusiastic but not too loud, energetic but not too fast, contemporary but traditional, soothing but exciting. And this one applies to me. We want the preacher to be youthful but not too young, relevant but not trendy, spiritual but down to earth, funny but full of gravitas. And most of all, we want 
that a pastor can deliver a life-changing message in 20 minutes or less. And if anything stops with the expectation that we have of a church, then before you know it, we're church shopping again. Because we are consumers. And in the consumption mentality that we have, we want a place that is a one-stop shop that fills our very desires and every desires. The second aspect of consumerism is a desire for the best brand. Now, what does this mean? This means we're looking for status. We're looking for the branding, the packaging, the look, the feel, the aesthetics, the social status that comes from having that brand, a a desire uh, to be in the it group and therefore to have those things, a desire to be well-liked in the right social circles. That's all part of branding. So when it comes to fashion, we don't ask the question, does it look good or is it appropriate? We ask, is it in? Is it fit? Is it cool? You see, the consumer is looking for something that is trendy. And so everyone copies everyone else if that is the trend. You know, I'm no expert in fashion. I don't have much of a fashion sense. But I don't believe anyone's going to know the difference between a 50 peso white undershirt of a local brand and a 2,500 white shirt from Nike. It's an undershirt. No one ever sees it. And yet, somehow, when you put on the more expensive thing, doesn't it make you feel good? It makes you feel good. You feel more important. It's an undershirt. But it makes you feel important. It gives you confidence. It gives you pride. And I know that you clothing gurus know that they all come from the same factory anyways. They just put on different brand names at the end of the assembly line. But somehow that logo, that, that name, makes all the difference in the world. And that's what we want. We want the best brand. Even people who like me who say we're not brand conscious, we're kidding ourselves because we are affected by branding. We want people to perceive us in this way or that way. We do care what people think. And somehow that branding affects what we believe people think of us. And unfortunately, that's worked its way into the Christian life, into the community we call the church. Somehow the church has to be branded as a cool church to be a part of it. We want a church with a great name where it's it's the in thing to be at that church. And so we would say we go to so-and-so church and we associate a church with a person. Or we say we go to this church because do you know what important people go to this church? And sometimes we say, well, our church has the most awesome choir. We have the best children's program. We've got the greatest sound system. We, we, we just had a concert in our state-of-the-art sanctuary. Or some would say, we've got this history. Or we're the largest church. We're the oldest church. We're the largest church in this subset. And we say those things because we want to brand the church, the community of which we are a part of. We want to be associated with the church. That's cool. And being a part of it gives us pride. So it is in our individual lives as followers of Christ. 
when it's cool to be a Christian, then we are. And we're full of energy coming on a Sunday. But when it's not cool to be a Christian Monday through Friday, then we forget that we're followers of Christ. You see, that's all about branding. How are you branding your Christian walk with God? How are you picking the community of which you are a part? The third aspect of the consumer mentality is the widest selection of the best brands at the best price. We all want the best price. We want the best bargain. And here's the mentality. I want to get everything, the most I can get, without paying too much. And so that's why we love free things. To get the most amount of things for the least amount of cost to us. That is what we call a bargain. And that's why you've got warehouse places like SNR that, that, that survive and, and are flourishing. Because why in the world do you need 50 rolls of toilet paper in your house for only the two of you? Because it's cheap. And I get to save one peso for each roll of toilet paper. And if I buy in bulk, I'm getting a great deal. You save 50 peso, but now you've got to find space for your 50 rolls of toilet paper. Did you ever notice that when you go to the store, everything is perpetually on sale? Everything's always on sale. You know, I, I, I've seen stores that have out, going out of business sale. One year later, they're still going out of business, but they're still on sale. Never have I come across to a store that's not on sale. I'm sorry, we just had a sale last week. You missed out. Because those four letters in the word sale triggers in our mind a great deal. And you, who are in business, understand that you mark up the price and then put it on sale. When my wife goes shopping, I often like to kid her, but there's some truth to this. I tell her, nothing is as cheap as not buying. Nothing is as cheap as not buying. But honey, it's on sale. Is it free? That desire for the best price has worked its way into spirituality. And so when it comes to our relationship with God, you know what our mentality is? What can I get from God? I'm going to get as much as I can from God with putting in as little effort as I can, right? That, that's, that's the current day Christian mentality. I want as much as possible from God with putting in as little effort and resources that I can. And so I don't know why some of you are here this morning Maybe some of you came to church because you, in your mind, figured out that if I come to church, God's going to bless me. And that's a pretty good return on investment. One hour of worship, all that blessing, pretty good. All I have to do is sit here and, and listen and, and look like I'm halfway interested because I've come to church now. doesn't matter if I sleep. I'm here. My physical presence has me in a pew. Very little effort from me, I get God's blessings. Wow. 
One hour of my time means God's going to give me that business deal. One hour of my time means God's going to make sure my family is successful. You see how we've brought in consumerism into the church and into our individual life. How many of you, when you come to church, this is your expectation? I want to get child care. I want amazing music every week. I want to make sure, and they better give me parking right in front of the church so I don't have to walk so far. And those services better fit my schedule. And if it doesn't, you know what? I'll just be late. It's not a big deal. I've invested my time to God, and I expect Him to give me all the best. And I expect the church to give me everything that I desire. Getting the most out of my spiritual walk with God by putting in as little effort as possible. Arthur Boris in the other side writes on consumerism. He says, I often visit newcomers in town and find them to be church shopping. They want to know what they can get out of church. Churches are one more consumer commodity. Worship services are not a place for us to serve God and neighbors, but a place where people expect to purchase the best. By them coming, he says, they are purchasing inspiring worship, good music, moving sermons, quality child care. And he notes, as if we buy God and not vice versa. Many of us are buying God. We're buying an experience from him for the least amount of effort from me or cost of my time and resources. Do you know what desiring to have the widest selections of the best brands at the best price in our spiritual life and in our church leads to? You know what it leads to? It leads to a very unsatisfied customer. Because God calls us in our personal faith journey to a life of discipleship. And you remember what Jesus said? We are to count the cost. You are to deny yourself. You are to pick up the cross and you are to follow me. Nothing about getting the best bargain with the best brand. And that's why Christians are so frustrated because they take their consumer mentality and bring it into their spiritual life and they expect that somehow, some way, they will be fulfilled. And yet God says, a life of discipleship is a life that counts the cost. If you bring that consumer mentality into the church, you will not want to be here, at least for very long. You know, I've noted this. Uh, church is a funny place. It's like no other organization in the world. It's not even like a business. And yet some people like to run the church as a business. Church is a funny place. Church is the only place, I believe, in the world, or organization, or entity in the world, where you have to come voluntarily. We invite people to come voluntarily. And we invite them to come on time. And when they come, they get yelled at. They get rebuked. They get convicted of their sin. And after we finish yelling at them, we ask you to give your money to the church. And then we ask you to give of your time. And then after that, we ask you to come back for more yelling and for more rebuking. And then as you're being rebuked, we ask you to smile because Jesus loves you and you love Jesus. It is a wonderment to me with my business background that the church even has any people in it. Think about that. It's a wonder. It's a miracle of God 
that the church even exists. And yet it does. But we brought consumer mentality into the church, wanting this and that, putting in little effort. No wonder we are so unsatisfied into the church. And when we bring that mentality into the church, we invariably begin to compare. Because churches who do not speak the truth from the Scriptures, who want to make you feel good, will invariably draw a lot of people. And we're going to start comparing our church to theirs. And when you begin to compare, you might as well pick a date when you're going to leave. Because that's the honest truth. When we compare, we might as well leave. Because at some point, whether it's 5 years, 10 years, 20 years, you will come to a point where you're no longer satisfied and you'll simply leave. So what's the right way to engage this type of culture? Verse 7 of Revelations chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things say, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. The context of this verse is that the book of Revelation begins with God bringing a message to seven churches in Asia Minor or in modern-day Turkey. These Seven churches characterize or typifies churches in the world today. Five out of these seven churches, God commends, but he rebukes them. Some churches have left their first love, which is Jesus. Some of them tolerate sin, and so God rebukes them. Only two out of seven churches does God commend without rebuking them. He sees them as healthy churches. The one being the persecuted church of Smyrna. And the second one, the faithful church of Philadelphia. And so in this church in Philadelphia, Jesus Christ begins by describing who he is. He is the one who is holy. He is the one who is true. He describes the character of who he is. I am a holy God. I'm a righteous God. I demand holiness. I'm the God of truth. There is a moral absolute. What I say is true. And then he goes on to describe himself as the one who holds the key of David. The one who opens doors and no one shuts it and shuts and no one can open it. Here it is describing the characteristic of God's sovereignty. His right to rule. Don't you ever forget... That God has the right to do what He desires to do. We are reminded in this verse that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God Himself, is the head of the church. He chooses which doors to open and shut. He chooses whom to bless and whom to impede and curse because of their disobedience. He chooses which churches to bless and which churches He desires to close down. Because nothing will happen apart from what God allows and wills. And this is a stark reminder that we are not the ones choosing God. He is the one who looks down from heaven and chooses whom to use. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 reminds us 
The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout this entire earth looking for men and women whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Did you get that? God is the one looking. He's looking around this entire world, looking for people and bodies of believers called the church who are wholly committed to Him so that He will show Himself strong. He will bless them. As has been said in worship, we are not the audience. God is the audience, and we are here to please Him. It is my prayer for this church and for you, my friends, that God will never take His hand of blessing away from you. When God decides no longer to use you, or no longer to use this church, will be a sad day when we might as well close up these doors. Because I've seen it day in and day out when God, because someone is so stubborn and will not change their ways, God takes his hand of blessing away. I pity them. Because there is nothing they can do with their ability. There is nothing they can do. Whatever they want to do, they simply will not succeed. Because the sovereign God says, I'm the one who opens. And if I open it, no one can shut it. And if I shut it, no one can open it. And so it must radically change the mindset and the paradigm that we have. And the shift in paradigm, if you're taking notes, is this. God is the consumer. God is the consumer, not us. And therefore, we as the product, quote-unquote, must make ourselves attractive so that He will be pleased with our work. So it is in our spiritual life. So it is in our church. God is the consumer. He is looking down to see how his products are. And like one who goes to the fruit stand, where on the outside the fruit is shiny, but when you pick up the fruit and you turn it around, you see that it is rotten. It is empty to the core. So God is doing. I wonder if God is the customer and we are the product. I wonder what he sees. I wonder what he sees in us. And I wonder what he sees about our church. And yet when he looked down at the church of Philadelphia, he saw that this was a church that needed to be commended. This was a church in which he was well pleased. What were the characteristics of the church in Philadelphia that we as a church and we as individuals need to emulate? The first part of verse 8. Revelations 3 verse 8. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. God begins in this commendation to the Philadelphians. I know your work. I've set before you an open door. I've given you much opportunities, and I do not shut it because you have made yourself available. You've walked through those doors. I know your works. Every time this Philadelphia church was given an opportunity to minister, to do the work of God, they walked through it. They were always available for God. If we take the three aspects of consumerism and God is the consumer, when he's looking for the widest selection, 
What is his selection criteria? He is looking for one who is always available for him. If you're taking notes, number one. In God's selection criteria, he will select those who are always available for him. God is looking for people, my friends, who are available, you and I. He's looking for a church that is willing to do things that no one else is willing to do. Because if we don't take up that opportunity, God will give that opportunity to another. And we become irrelevant in the work of God. And this church becomes no longer relevant to the community. But as God calls for volunteers, I wonder if we make ourselves available. You remember the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 8. When God is looking for a prophet to speak to a people whose hearts were hardened, it would be a difficult job. And the prophet Isaiah says, Here am I. Send me. Can you say that when God calls you into the ministry? Or God calls you to do a work that would be difficult. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Most of us don't even have our hands up. We're looking around. Send him. Send her. I've been teaching a class at Grace since 2002. I love teaching. But you teachers know, if you ever taught a class or taught Sunday school, you know there's always one in your class who always raises his hands. You know, the kid who has an answer to everything And at first, it's pretty cool. But then honestly, as a teacher, it gets annoying. They're always there. Pick me, pick me, with their hands outstretched. And sometimes, truthfully, I pretend not to see them. Anyone else? Anyone else? But you know, after that initial annoyance, I come to an understanding and an appreciation for that kid who always raises his hand. Why do I appreciate them so? Because you know you can always depend on them. If the class that day doesn't want to interact with you, doesn't have any questions, just kind of sit there, you can always depend on that kid to raise his hands and answer your questions. So there's not that awkward silence. I believe that's a picture of how And what God is looking for. Now, I don't think God is annoyed when we keep raising our hands. But he is looking for people. When he calls out an opportunity, everyone shoots up their hand and says, Here am I. Send me. Are you one when God calls? Even if there's hardship and inconvenience, will raise your hand and say, Lord, pick me. Will we be a church where everyone in our community raises his hands and says, we will do it? Because when God is looking for people to use, he's looking for people who have made themselves available. It has nothing to do with busyness. And we'll talk more about that in subsequent sermons. He's not caring whether how busy you are he knows how busy you are but he wants to see if you're willing to make yourself available 
Are we a community with outstretched arms just waiting for the privilege of doing the work of God? This church in Philadelphia had all of their hands raised. And God says, I know your work. And that's why I've blessed your church. I've opened the doors and no one's going to be able to shut it. I've selected you because you have made yourself available. Don't give the privilege of serving God to another if you yourself are not willing to take it up. Look at the second part of verse 8. See, I've set before you an open door. No one can shut it. Note this. For you have a little strength. What is this church known for? What's their brand? If the church in Philadelphia were to advertise itself, what would draw the people? We've got the most awesome church building. We've got a beautiful sanctuary. We have child care for every age group. We've got a dynamic communicator. We've got wonderful music. What were they known for? The Bible says it right here. They were known as the church of little strength. Now, if you're church shopping, would you ever pick the church of Philadelphia? A church with little strength? Now, what does this mean? The Bible doesn't give us a lot of clues. Maybe they were small in number. Maybe a church of 15, a church of 20. Maybe there were a church that wasn't respected very much. Out of the seven, Philadelphia was kind of the stepchild. No one wanted them. Oh, the church in Philadelphia, ah, they don't mean very much. Maybe this was a church of a bunch of poor people. They didn't have much influence in the community. They were of little strength. They, they didn't have the resources to do much. Or maybe they were a very large church with a lot of humble people. But here the Bible tells us they were commended. Their branding was that they were a church of little strength. Why is this commended in the scriptures? I remember what the Lord tells Paul in 2 Corinthians. When Paul is asking the Lord, Lord, take this thorn in the flesh. Whatever physical ailment it must have been, it, it, it so affected the ministry of Paul that the Bible tells us Paul pleaded three times, Lord, please take this thorn in the flesh away from me. And, and this faithful man, Paul, is told by God, no. No, Paul, I will not take this thorn in the flesh but he tells Paul something which Paul recounts in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, in my, in my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Wow. The Philadelphian church was a church of little strength. And I believe 
it was a mighty church. Because in their little strength, the power of God was infused into their church and they did some amazing things. And God says, you are a church known as a church that is little. But in this, I commend you because in your weakness, my power is made perfect. And there it is. The brand that we as individuals need to have in our spiritual walk with God and in the community we call the church. Can you be known as one who depends upon the Lord daily? One who is weak but utterly depends upon Him. Can this church be known as a church, not in Grace Village, but a church that depends always upon God? I'll be honest with you. This is a tough one for me. And it's tough for you because you are so talented. And the more talented you are, the more resources that you have, you find it much harder to depend upon God. There are times, I have to admit, I come to the pulpit and I don't come prepared. It was a busy week. My mind is not where it needs to be. And I'll come up here. In the colloquialism of English, we say, we wing it. I wing it. I know I'm a good communicator. I speak well. If I want to emphasize something, I just simply speak louder. Somehow my English accent means that the sermon must be more important. I don't know. But I come up here and I wing it. And I trust in my own power. But then I realize at those times, the spirit does not move in the hearts of the people. And then there are times I come and I have been struggling with a passage all week and I can't understand it and I can't put it into practical terms and I whisper a prayer before I come up. Lord, this is yours. And I think that I preach the worst sermon. The people are moved. And I know it's not because of me, but because the power of God that works. And we all wing it because we are so talented because we know what to say. Because we are so confident in our areas of expertise that we only come and ask God for help when we have failed. And so we rely upon our own power. We begin to believe our own hype. When I begin to get on a power trip, when my head gets too big for my body, I'm reminded of one thing. I'm reminded of a power strip. You know what a power strip is? power strip. That's where you plug in all your devices. You can go to the hardware store and you can buy a power strip. And there's a lot of options. You can buy the world's greatest power strip with blinking lights and everything. You can have power strips that turn off and on certain sockets. You can have power strips that, that can fit 30 devices. You can have power strips where you can plug in your television, your refrigerator, your washing machine. That's a heavy-duty power strip. You can have the world's greatest power strip. But if you take that end of the power strip and you plug it into itself, is anything going to run? No. You can have the world's greatest power strip and plug it into itself. It is useless. So it is in the power trip that we have. It's all about me. We plug into ourselves. We're nothing. But when you take the end of that power strip and you plug it into the wall socket, the source, the whole thing comes up. I hope that makes sense. 
We are nothing apart from Christ. That's why the Lord says, abide in me and I in you, because without me you can do nothing. How many of us have plugged ourselves into the source? This is something that the church in Philadelphia understood. They were one of little strength. When they plugged into the source, wow, they were an amazing church commended by God. That's my prayer for this church. A church that always depends upon the strength of the Lord. I pray we will never get so big that we stop trusting in Him. That we begin to operate because we have the resources and the capacity and the capability to put on a good show. And so it is in your individual life as well. That you will never become so great that you begin to trust in yourself. Because the brand that God is looking for is the one who always depends upon Him. The final part of verse 8. For you have little strength, but have kept my word and have not denied my name. When we come to God as the consumer, we've talked about his selection. We would talk about the brand. What about the price? As the consumer, if it's us, we're looking for the best bargain. We're looking for the best deal. Is God looking for the same thing? Is he going to look for the best deal? When it comes to finding the best bargain, we don't have loyalty to anything. If this clothes is cheaper here, we'll buy it from this store. If this restaurant is running a promotion, we'll eat at this restaurant. And that's why companies and corporations start loyalty programs like air miles and bank miles, points and whatever else to keep your loyalty. They say, we've given you all this great product, but boy, we can't buy your loyalty. So we got to give you more. And so that's how we believe that the best bargaining needs to happen. But God is the consumer, and he looks down at us, and he says, okay, what can I get out of you? Nothing. Not because he's disappointed, but because if you look from the Scriptures, you understand that in the bargain of what he did to redeem us, he lost out on the deal. He lost out. He said, okay, let's trade. Give me all of your sins. I give you my death. And then I'm going to give you salvation, and I'm going to give you eternal life and the blessings that come with it. Is that a fair deal? Give me your sins. Here's my life and my death. And you get salvation and eternal life. It's not a fair deal. And yet, he doesn't ask of us anything except that we are committed to him. When we remember the purchase price, the response of the product is to respond in commitment, in loyalty. This was a church, I believe, 
who remembered always what Jesus Christ did for them. And so they were loyal to God. Verse 8, they have kept my word and have not denied my name. My friends, God is looking for those who are loyal to Him. Loyal to Him. Committed to Him. There's a very popular church, very large church just this week, uh, that their pastor was asked by the media their view on the homosexual behavior. This is the church that uh, tours its music group, and we've sang some of the songs from this group. When they were asked the very straightforward question, what is your view on the homosexual behavior, their pastor said they were still discussing it. It was an ongoing conversation. One of the people in the leadership said, it is not our place to tell anyone how they should live. That's their journey. It's a non-answer, but an answer nevertheless. I wonder if that pastor was asked the question, is it okay to sleep with someone's wife? Well, it's a straightforward question. And the straightforward answer is absolutely not. Of course not. Why couldn't he give a straightforward answer? As one critic of the non-answer tells us, at the end of the day, I believe the non-answer is rooted in an embarrassment about what the Bible teaches. And I think that's true for many of us. We do not have conviction because we are honestly embarrassed about what the Bible teaches. We're embarrassed. We are embarrassed that the Bible tells us that there's only one way to heaven. We don't like that exclusivity. We want to be inclusive and loving. Jesus Christ, the only way? We are embarrassed by what the Bible says. We're embarrassed when he tells us you're not to live a life of sexual sin or any sin because the world says, well, that's where all the fun comes from. And so we're embarrassed and we just simply keep our mouth shut and we don't say anything because we're embarrassed about what the Bible teaches. And when we believe that the world was created in six literal days, we're afraid to say anything because we're embarrassed because the world will say, you're so dumb that you would believe that this amazing universe would be created in six days even though you have an amazing God but that's ludicrous you must be an intellectual dummy and so we keep our mouth shut because our non-answer is rooted in an embarrassment about what the Bible teaches and so we turn our backs to it and instead of saying anything against it we simply keep quiet do you know why God commends this church? Because they kept my word and have not denied my name. In the crazy, hypersexualized culture of the Roman world, the Philadelphians kept God's word and they did not deny Christ. What about you? What about this church? Are you fully committed to Him? When all has been stripped away, as the song goes, 
What is the core essence of your relationship with God? I wonder sometimes if we stripped out all the trappings of this building, if we didn't have music, we didn't have all the nice things, we didn't have air conditioning, we didn't have pews, and you came one Sunday and you all had to sit on the floor, which would be a great experiment one Sunday. Maybe we'll try that. You know I will. You come one day, nowhere to sit. The conveniences are no longer there. You park a mile away. Then you begin to see what you really see about this church. And this community you say that you desire to be a part of. How about in your personal life? When all has been stripped away, when God doesn't answer your prayer, never gives you a child, when God does not allow you to be blessed with many things, when He doesn't answer your prayer to get well from the sickness that you have or the sickness of your family member, when God takes away someone so beloved and special from you, when all that has been taken away, your relationship with God will see its most pure form in your commitment to Him. And if you are no longer committed to Him, then you realize very quickly that your commitment to Him was only because He gave you things. Well, God is the consumer. And He's looking down upon us. And He loves us very much. And He desires to live for us to live in His grace. But He says of us, I have paid the purchase price for your life. All I ask is for a little loyalty, full-hearted commitment. We don't need anything else from God. If God doesn't give me any more thing from this day forward, I will still be committed to Him because He laid down His life for me. There's a saying that the customer is always right. And that even more in who God is, in His sovereignty, He's always right. He gets to set the rules by which we play and how we live. And it is rules that are set up from a loving God. And our obedience shows forth our commitment to Him. And so as He looks down upon our life and in this church, when He decides to select someone, are we available? When he looks for the right branding, does he see in us and in our church one of little strength that utterly depends upon the power of God? And in the price that has been paid, does he see from us commitment? I end with this story told, of, told by Bob Perks. He was at the airport when he overheard a father and his daughter in their last moment together. The plane had, the plane, the airport had just announced uh, the departure of this plane and they were standing near the security gate and they hugged and the father said to the daughter, I love you. I wish you enough. She in turn said to her father, Daddy, our life together has been more than enough. Your love is all I ever needed. I wish you enough also, Daddy. They kissed and she left. 
And this man walked towards the window where I was seated. And Bob recounts, standing there, I could see he wanted and needed to cry. I tried not to intrude on his privacy, but he welcomed me in by asking, Did you ever say goodbye to someone knowing it would be forever? Bob replied, Yes, I have. Saying that brought back memories I had of expressing my own love and appreciation for all my father had done for me. Recognizing that his day was limited, I took the time to tell him face-to-face how much he meant to me. So I knew what this man was experiencing. And so Bob asked this man, forgive me for asking, but why is this a forever goodbye? The man tells Bob, I'm old. My daughter lives much too far away. I have challenges ahead, and the reality is the next time she comes back will be for my funeral. Bob then asked the man, when you were saying goodbye, I heard you say, I wish you enough. May I ask, what does that mean? I wish you enough. He began to smile and he said, well, that's a wish that had been handed down from other generations. My parents used to say it to everyone. I wish you enough. He paused for a moment and looked up as if trying to remember in detail. He smiled even more. He told Bob, when we say, I wish you enough, we're wanting the other person to have a life filled with just enough good things to sustain them. He continued and turned toward me, sharing me a poem that he recited from memory. It went something like this. I wish you enough sun to keep your attitude bright. I wish you enough rain to appreciate the sun more. I wish you enough happiness to keep your spirit alive. I wish you enough pain so that the smallest joys in life appear much bigger. I wish you enough gain to satisfy your wanting. I wish you enough loss to appreciate all that you possess. I wish you enough hellos to get you through the final goodbye. He then began to sob and walked away. In this consumer-driven world where more is supposedly better, I wish for each of you just enough. And if you would allow me to add three more wishes to this poem, both for you and for the church, may I say, I wish you enough time to be available when God is looking for someone to use. I wish you enough personal failures so that in our weakness and humility, we will be known as one who always depends upon the Lord. I wish you enough memories to remind you of the price paid by Jesus Christ on the cross so that you will be committed to him until the day you see him. So my friends, on this 46th anniversary of our church, I wish you enough. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it is a good reminder even to me that that which the world looks for is what you look for as well. And yet we are not picking you, you are picking us. May you find in each one of our lives here and in this community we call the church 
men and women who are always raising their hands, as busy as they are, willing to drop everything if the Lord calls them to do a specific task. I pray we will always be known as men and women who are of little strength, but we depend upon you wholly because your strength is perfected in our weakness. I pray we will always remember the purchase price of our life, that we would be men and women reminded always that the life of Jesus Christ died in our place so that we can be fully committed to you. Until the day we see you, until you tell us the work is done, Lord, may this church be fully committed to you. It is not about our glory. It is about proclaiming yours. And so it is the wish of my heart that for each person and for this church that we will have just enough, never more, never less, so that we will never stop remembering you in the midst of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.